All right, boys and girls, episode 72 with Tim Henriquez is about to start, and we are going to get into the nitty and gritty of powerlifting. So the big three are squats, deadlifts, and bench press, and we're going to dive into the most common mistakes, what to do to fix them, and how to become more of a badass in the gym to get your deadlift numbers up without injuring yourself. So let's just get into the episode as Tim has a lot of information to get into and hope you guys enjoy it. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is Tim Henriquez. Say hello. Hi guys. Uh, So to start us off, I always ask all my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend? This weekend, well, my weekend's already started because I don't work on Friday, so that's pretty glorious. Nice. Uh, Friday's Friday's my writing day, so I'm I'm busy working on a fantasy novel here and uh, just finished a chapter on that, feeling good about it. And then uh, tomorrow, mainly kids sports stuff. All my boys are doing different sports. I got three kids, and I always teach on Sunday a couple hours with my powerlifting team, and uh, my son's got a track meet and. Pretty much just kind of chilling. Awesome. What what made you want to write a fantasy book? I'm a huge like Dungeons and Dragons geek. Nice. Uh, you know, Conan was one of the, kind of my first favorite movies. That also kind of got me into you know wanting to bodybuild or at least you know build build bigger muscles. Um, and then uh, you know I just enjoyed kind of playing with friends. And then I always kind of had the idea of like writing a book based on some adventures. And it's been in my head for a super long time. And then I started working on it pretty hard about a decade ago, you know, on and off, and then decided, all right, it's, it's on my bucket list, so uh, I got the two the two nonfiction uh, works out, so now it's time to dip my toe into the fiction world. That's awesome. Have you ever uh, seen Stranger Things then? No, I don't think I've seen Stranger Things. What's that about? Uh, so if you like Dungeons and Dragons, it's a TV show on Netflix, and it's basically kind of like a tribute to that era of like Dungeons and Dragons, um, E.T., The Goonies. Uh, It's a pretty good show because I remember when it first came out uh, at the same time, um, I can't remember what website does it, but they put out like the top 100 shows of all time. And usually like number one is Friends or Seinfeld. And Stranger Things was out for maybe four months at the time and it made top 10. It's a really good show. Like, it's based on that kind of whole fantasy land of all these kids thinking that, you know, there's like a demon out there and they need to like attack it to save the world. It, it's great, honestly. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I just finished reading uh, Ready Player One. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, but it's kind of along the same uh, same genre. But yeah, no, I'll definitely check that out. That sounds cool. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, so let's uh, tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? All right, so my name is Tim Enriquez, and uh, my full-time job is teaching people to become personal trainers. I run the National Personal Training Institute, um, which is like a 600-hour-long program, a little bit like massage therapy, if anybody's used to that, uh, where we take people through. We teach them all about anatomy, nutrition, physiology, program design. We spend a couple hours every day in the classroom. So it's a 6- to 12-month-long program. When people graduate, they're certified nutrition, certified personal trainers. So I've been doing that since one and uh, I got into the industry honestly kind of selfishly um, when I was in high school I've kind of fell in love with lifting growing up on Arnold movies and Stallone right those are those are the two heroes and so um, you know I wanted to look like that 
And then, uh, so I was just working out and then kind of hit a wall with lifting and basically in order to get better, I just started studying it more. Um, and then as I learned more, people started to ask me like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Like, how come, why is your bench going up or how are you training like this? And then I got a lot of joy out of training others. Um, but initially it was kind of a selfish impulse and just trying to make myself better. But then I ended up getting just as much pleasure out of helping others as, uh, as making myself, you know, stronger and more fit. And now I'm kind of retired from competitions, but I still get a lot of joy out of, you know, helping my students or coaching my team and uh, just kind of spread the knowledge. Awesome. Uh, so what made you want to start? I think it's the NPTI, right? Yes. So, so what... I, I didn't create that. Um, so it's like uh, it's a little bit like a, an independent franchise kind of thing. So there's about 30 schools across the country, but I was part of the very beginning of it. And um, I've always felt that personal training education, you know, was pretty lacking. Uh, even my own kinesiology degree, you know, there, there was one class that we had that we were supposed to do in the gym. And honestly, they, they just waived it for me anyway, because I was always in there. And so I was like, really, people are, you know, training to become, you know, trainers or fitness professionals. I would have people with, you know, getting masters in kinesiology. And I was like a sophomore and they'd be like, hey, can you write me a program? You know, and they could tell you the sliding filament theory, but they couldn't write a good program. So, um, and then of course, there's all in in America anyway. It's mainly just online self-study certifications. Yeah, which, it, um, it's like that here in Canada too. Like, you know, you can go online and find a certification you can do in you know 24 hours, and now you're legally right. able to train people. But yeah, like you're right. Like even for us, the students in the Ken degree, you know, they have like four years of knowledge, but then they're like they don't know how to coach a deadlift right? yeah and it's like such a missing link in that program and i know here and uh, where i am they're supposed to have i think 30 hours of like in-person experience at a gym but i'm like 30 hours to learn everything about coaching is a pretty short amount of time totally totally yeah so we we basically the whole idea was let's take everything that's good from a degree uh let's cut all the fluff uh, let's add in a really extensive practical part. So for us, it's two hours every day, you know, for a hundred days that they're in the gym. And then, um, you know, and then that way they can actually get a diploma in personal training and, you know, hopefully they can get a good education. And so I've been able to kind of help set up the curriculum and I wrote the textbook that all the schools use. So it's, uh, it's, it's gone well, it's a super fun job. And, um, you know, it's, I get to talk about fitness all day. The students really seem to like it. So, uh, that's, that, that's been been definitely very beneficial for me so with this school like is it everything in person or there is there like an online version for this no there, there's no online version i'd love to kind of be able to you know to to meet both needs and i do get people contacting me from europe or something like oh we want to take the school but um i mean maybe someone with a better brain than mine for that kind of stuff can figure it out but you know to me you, you lose some of the heart of the program our selling point is you know we're a brick and mortar school you actually come in you have lectures you know we go to the gym you have an instructor you can ask questions you can learn it's adult education too so often you learn a lot from the other students as well as it's not just learning from the instructor so um so yeah we are an in-person thing like i said we have a bunch of them across the uh the country um we have one in toronto uh, up in Canada, so uh, we're we're trying to spread. We started with four schools in like 2001. Now we have about 30 schools, um, so hopefully we'll just we'll keep spreading. But uh, right now it's an in-person option only. Awesome. 
So if you had to give advice to like a brand new person that might not have a school like this, you know, near them, would you right. like convince them to go to school and get their kin degree or would, the, would you want them to get a different certification and maybe like an internship? Like what would your advice be for someone brand new into the industry? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would definitely, you know, if, if they can, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I do work for the company, but uh, if they can get to a school, you know, and get some hands-on education, awesome. Uh, I'm never going to discourage someone from getting extra education. So if they wanted to go get a degree, uh, again, I mean, that's what I did. Um, you know, it sounds like that's what you did. So it's, it's pretty much the same. That's okay. But it's, it's harder for people where we get a lot of people where this is going to be their second career. And, uh, you know, when you're 40 and with kids, it's a lot tougher to go back to, you know, college um, unless you're trying to do old school style and, uh, and you know, and, and then trying to get all the classes and stuff. So for those people, I would say college is nice but not a necessity. And in that case, then just legally in America, you're going to have to get a certification from, you know, one of the big five. So the big five would be us, uh, the NASM, the NSCA, the ACSM, or ACE. Uh, those, you know, usually will get your your foot in the door in pretty much any gym. Um, so if, if you didn't, if you couldn't go to a college and there wasn't an NPTI within like driving distance, then I would get, you know, probably NSCA or NASM. Those are probably your your top two. Uh, they each have pros and cons. And then what I would do is I would try to one set up like a little bit of mentorship program. So what we do in our schools, we do require 50 hours of shadowing so people can see like real world training taking place. Um, but I would try to find some people that would let you do that. And then I'd get a list of some people online, uh, just some names that pop in my head would be like, you know, Eric Cressy, Brett Cretrieris, yourself, things like that, where people can kind of follow and learn. Um, and, you know, in that way, if, if you have self-directed study with good people, you waste a lot of time cutting through the shit, uh, like, like that name. <laughs> so, uh, and figuring out good stuff and then, you know, realizing what's going on. Yeah, like when I first started in the industry, I just went on my like like Google searched all the top coaches, added them on Facebook, and then my Facebook feed became just blogs and articles, and that was like my continuing education. I'm like, this is the best idea ever, and anyone listening, that's what I encourage you to do is like Google like you know someone in your area, Google uh, you know coaches that you look up to, add them on Facebook, and just read all of their stuff every single day. I would totally agree with that. And that's one of the joys of the internet is, you know, I mean, coaches are maybe more famous, but it's not like you're trying to reach out to, you know, the rock or Tom Hanks or something. Yeah. So most of the time coaches are pretty approachable. You can send them a quick message and you can at least get access to their thoughts, which is pretty cool. I'm also curious, like what made you get into powerlifting? Cause it's not a sport that a lot of people are like, yeah, I can't wait to like powerlift when I'm older. Like what made right. you uh, look at it? Like, man, this is going to be so cool to get into. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun history, I think. So for me, I got, I had three older brothers and I was pretty, I was six years younger than my closest brother, you know, so pretty big age difference. Uh, you know, and boys are all t often tend to be pretty competitive. My dad was always into sports and, you know, was always kind of just watching football or basketball or whatever. And to be honest, I was, I was a pretty crappy uh, athlete when I was a kid. <laughs> um, you know, I was the kind of kid that you know, you're like, oh, he, he's like a nice guy, and you know, he, he's, you, you'll play him the minimum of two quarters, but uh, you know, you, you don't want ten of me on your team if you want to win. Um, but I was smart enough to realize that I sucked, so that was kind of frustrating. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then once I hit high school, uh, I kind of just 
took a weight training class. Uh, I joined Gold's Gym um, and just started working out. And I always kind of, I kind of liked, you know, I liked lifting. I was, you know, I was certainly no prodigy, but I remember in, uh, I think it was seventh grade, we all maxed out in the universal like chest press, and and I got 115 when most of the other kids got 100. So I was like one plate up. And for someone who didn't usually excel in anything athletic, I was like, wow, that's like that like felt good, you know, to be kind of good at something. And so then I kept lifting, and then I really started to fall in love with it. Like I said, I, I, I idolized like Arnold and Stallone, and you know, always wanted to, you know, looked kind of jacked. Um, and then and I played football in high school, but I didn't really like the idea that, and I was on defense, but I didn't really like the idea that if I played well, there was a decent chance someone was going to get hurt. You know, the receiver goes up for the ball, and I'm supposed to just destroy him in the back. Um, I, I was cool with hurting myself. <laughs> like, I could I could be, you know, I was okay with any danger of me doing something, but I didn't really like the idea that, I, that there was a reasonable chance that I could hurt somebody else. So lifting was kind of perfect. It was that one-on-one. You know, I also maybe being a little egotistical or whatever. I liked it when it was on my shoulders. Um, you know, if you play team sport, there's also, there's awesome things about that, but it can be frustrating when, you know, part of the team kind of lets you down a little bit. So powerlifting is, is pretty much just you and the weight you're up on the platform. If you screw up, there's no excuses. Uh, you're the only one that, that can have any problems. So, uh, when I did my first meet, I kind of like fell in love right away and I've been basically, you know, I retired a couple of years ago, but pretty much did that for two decades pretty consistently. Awesome. Like, uh, I wanted to get into, like, your advice for someone who's new to powerlifting because it's starting to get a little bit more popular. And, like, I follow the Cosgroves, and one of the mm-hmm. things they do with their clients is actually, like, encourage them to, you know, go into powerlifting. And a lot of times, like, their clients will end up winning, like, state records because there's not a lot of... 62 year old like females that are powerlifting and it's pretty cool to like go up there and you deadlift as much as you can and you end up winning a state record but for someone brand new to it like what kind of advice would you give to a complete beginner have never done anything like that so if you've never done anything i mean you do obviously want to learn how to do the lifts and so if you're able to find you know a a, certainly and preferably an in-person coach you know, it would be worth a couple hundred bucks even just to get, say, like three sessions or something, you know, where, where someone who kind of knows what they're talking about gives you an idea of the basic form on how to bench and how to squat and how to deadlift. Um, and I would also encourage, and I know it's tough to do in the beginning, but, it, it, you know, it's not an immediate race. It's not a sprint. So it isn't just like I deadlifted 135 today. Now I got to try 315 tomorrow. You know, <laughs> take your time. The, the more you ingrain that good form, that will actually really help your strength down the road. Um, I'll go ahead and give myself a little bit of a selfish uh, a, a plug. You know, I wrote a book called All About Powerlifting, exactly for people that are interested in it and want to learn more about it. Um, so, if you don't have an in-person coach, or even if you do, you might find that that useful. Um, so, I would I would pick that up. And then uh, it it's also to me, even though I was talking about how it's an individual sport, it is a hell of a lot more fun to train with people. Uh, some of my best friends are, are my training partners, you know, including my best man at my wedding, and we're still best friends to this day. Uh, we started out as training partners. So if you can find, you know, a group of two or three or four, you know, like-minded individuals, and you get together a couple times a week, uh, to me that's one of the, the best things about the whole sport. Um, so if if you can, you know, get your basics down, have some patience, uh, get some decent coaching, um, and then just be consistent. You know, if you can just work out at least three times a week, relatively hard. 
you know, and give yourself three years and you can go from being, you know, average Joe to pretty badass in that period of time. Um, for someone starting out and like, you know, say they're a year into benching, squatting and deadlifting, like at what point would that client or person be ready to compete? Like, is there certain numbers they should hit first before they even go to a powerlifting meet or is it just more individualized to like kind of just go there and just do your best? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I actually get that question all the time. Um, I don't think there's necessarily one answer because honestly, what I really think you need to do is ask yourself, why are you competing? Um, if your true reason to compete is to win, which which I can relate to, uh, then of course you want to be relatively competitive. Um, I have on my website, the allaboutpowerlifting.com, there's a, a way to essentially classify and rank lifters. So in powerlifting, they rank the lifts down. Like elite is pretty badass. That usually means that you'll win most competitions. And then there's like master and class one, class two, class three, class four. And class four is kind of more of an, at a novice level. Uh, so people can at least go on that and just kind of see where they might fall. You know, so if you're a 200-pound male and you only deadlift 200 pounds, uh, just being blunt, you know, unless there's extenuating circumstances, that that's not going to you know be super impressive in a regular powerlifting competition. Uh, but having said that, I've also talked to people that always want to wait because they want to get a little bit stronger. And no matter how strong you are, you know, you'll always feel like, oh, if I was just a little bit stronger, I'd be, you know, more ready, more qualified, more able to go. Um, so for the majority of people, you know, I would encourage starting competitions, you know, relatively soon. I think the example you gave is great. You know, give yourself, you know, six to 12 months of kind of more serious training where you're practicing the lifts, your form is up to the competition standards. But but don't hesitate to get, dip your toe in the water. You know, just like a kid going out and play football or baseball. I mean, you wouldn't wait until you're awesome, you know, to, to play that game. You would build on it and then your, your experience and your skills would get better. So it's the exact same thing here. Maybe you do only deadlift 200 pounds. So what? Everybody knows strength is really just a contest of you against the weight. You got to start somewhere, and you know you might like it. You probably get more motivated, and then all of a sudden now your training is really ramped up. So I would not wait too long. You know, don't be like, well, I'm only going to compete unless I think I can beat the national champion, because <laughs> uh, then you'll just be sitting on the sideline forever. Yeah. Um... I think this next question will probably take a while to cover, but we can kind of make it into three parts because I'd really want to know what mistakes you see most commonly in the squat, deadlift, and bench. And maybe we can start with the deadlift because, you know, you go on Instagram and everybody is like a professional when it comes to deadlifting and what in their comments. Right. So I was wondering, like, maybe like what are the most common yeah mistakes you see in the deadlift and how can you fix them? When you say mistakes, do you mean uh, like, in mistakes in terms of a regular person just making it in their training program or do you mean like a competitive person on the platform um, making it in a, in the middle of a competition uh, let's go with the competition all right so if we start with the deadlift um, the good news is even when you kind of butcher a deadlift in the gym it still kind of resembles a deadlift you know I mean a deadlift has a distinct starting point weights on the ground uh, even lay people can kind of figure it out it has a distinct ending point when you're standing up straight. So unlike, for example, the squat, which we'll get to, where you might only squat halfway down and kind of deceive yourself into that you're squatting all the way and think you can do all this weight, you know, most people have some idea of what they can do on the deadlift. Uh, having said that, I would say the two biggest things are people often read that when they go to a competition, they're going to have this adrenaline rush and they'll lift more, which, which usually is true, but then they – 
way overestimate that. So newbies will occasionally put in a weight that's just ridiculously heavy. So let's just say the best they ever did in training was 300, you know, but they're like, well, I always wanted to get 365. So they'll just you know, start with that. Uh, and to me, that would be, you know, not, not wise in the slightest. Um, so, so the number one thing is probably just starting too heavy. Um, some newbies don't realize that you can't wear straps when you do a competition. So if you're used to using straps, you know, which attach the weight to you and take away your grip, which make the lift easier. Uh, if you're used to that, you know, that's going to be a big negative. Um, and then probably the, the next biggest thing is in a competition, you're not allowed to do what's called a hitch. A hitch is where the weight will go up your thighs and it will kind of like, like jump up your thighs. Like you'd almost use your legs as kind of leverage. Um, and so depending on how you're built, you're a little more likely to do that or not, but that would be illegal. So you'd want to watch some lifts and make sure essentially that it's just a smooth transition, just all, you know, all, all the way up. So from a competition point of view, I would say those are kind of the biggest three mistakes that I, that I usually see. Okay. Um, what's your opinion about like, you usually see this when people are like near maximal loads, like their spine looks fairly neutral, but it's almost like the shoulder blades drop forward because of the weight so heavy. Do you right. allow that as a coach, or do you want to see those like scapula kind of retract back more? That's a good question. Uh, some of that's also going to be a little individual. In terms of a competition, it's, it's not illegal to let your shoulders round, um, although for some people, if they round, they'll never get them back in position. So the rules in competition are pretty simple. You can deadlift any style. So you can do sumo, you can do conventional, you, you could do stiff-legged if you want. Uh, that would obviously not be advantageous. Um, and then at the end of the lift, you just have to stand up with your legs straight, your shoulders in line with your hips and legs, um, You know, so you're standing vertical. Um, when it comes to kind of the rounded upper back, it's going to vary a little bit. Certainly for a regular person, I'm not going to coach, you know, a rounding in really any part of their back. Uh, so generally it will be kind of shoulders, shoulders down and back, but not, um, you know, not, not forward. And then, you know, I like to think, okay, look, let's keep the chest up. Let's kind of stand tall and let's get in that kind of stand tall position. And hopefully we can maintain that all the way through the lift. Um, but on the flip side, when you get really elite, you, you rarely want to round your lower back, but you may find some people will round their upper back a little bit. It does lower the bar a little. And uh, as long as you can then stay in that position, an upper back rounding I'm not as uh, opposed to. It's the lower back rounding for me that's like, hey, you know, that's, that's what we definitely want to avoid. Uh, we don't want to do that. Okay. And when it comes to deadlifting, like, do you prefer conventional or sumo? And what are, like some advantages to both if someone had to choose one? Uh, so I, I, me personally, I was stronger uh, conventional. Um, so the best I ever did uh, was sumo was 605 and in a meet was 585 and then I got 700 conventional. Um, a lot of it's going to be, you know, based on how kind of how you're built. So the, the stereotype is sumo requires much better mobility. So if you're really flexible, you may want to take advantage of that and consider sumo. Um, sumo typically relies on stronger legs. So if you have like really strong glutes and quads and hamstrings and adductors in particular, um, and if you can combine that with being flexible, sumo is better. You know, stereotypically lighter females typically do better with this with the sumo lift, and then just lighter people in general. Uh, and then your conventional relies on longer arms and a stronger back. Uh, doesn't have to be as strong of legs. 
if you have any knee issues, you're almost for sure going to want to favor conventional. Um, you know, a lot of people feel like conventional is a little more functional. So for athletes, say like I was training a football player, I'd be more inclined to have them do conventional because that's probably going to represent more of a, like a traditional power position. Um, but but both both are good, and I actually like to do no matter which one you like. I usually have my lifters do both. One would just be noticeably lighter, uh, kind of as an assistance exercise, and then the other one, you know, is is going heavy on the on the on the more competition style. Um, so you can do either one. Uh, I've seen you know people of good size do, do either one, but but in general, lighter, flexible people like sumo, and then usually the bigger people like conventional. But that's not a hundred percent rule. Okay. Uh, have you seen more injuries with sumo deadlifting? I only ask because I remember I got to meet Chris Duffin from Kabuki Strength. Okay. And I think he tore something like recently when I saw him uh, in his hip because he was like trying to max out ridiculous numbers on his sumo. And I wonder if like you've seen a common like thread when it comes to deadlifting sumo or conventional when it comes to like hip injuries or anything like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd classify one as more dangerous. Uh, I mean, Chris Duffin's an unbelievably good uh, deadlifter, and he's been, you know, lifting super, super heavy weights just for a long period of time. Uh, Greg Knuckles with uh, Stronger by Science had a kind of a cool article out recently, which was just like kind of comparing injury rates in powerlifting. Um, powerlifting, for the most part, is pretty safe. It's certainly safer than something like, you know, playing football or something like that. Having said that, when you do lift heavy for a long period of time. So what they found there was it was more just when you get really strong with the goal of just continually get stronger, you know, once you've been doing it for 10 years or 15 years, you probably will suffer, you know, some sort of an injury if you just kind of keep the pedal on the metal. That doesn't mean it's going to be debilitating, but it just, you know, at something, at some point, something's going to happen. So I would say it's just a different kind of injury where sumo definitely hip as sumo is going to put a lot more pressure on the hip and on the knees. Uh, whereas conventional is more the the lower back, um, so some of it depends on you know how you feel right at the moment, um, and then kind of where you know where you're at. Uh, I do think if you squat super wide and you sumo super wide, you know then that means that's double volume on on that hip area. Um, so that's definitely something to keep in mind when you're programming. If basically the lifts resemble each other, you're going super heavy all the time. Uh, I, I would watch that. Okay. And like the other question I had about the deadlift is say you had, you know, regular Joe Blow that might not have the right mobility to get all the way down to the floor for their deadlift. What's your opinion about like elevated deadlifts or like rack pulls? Like, is it worth their time or is it just a waste of time? No, I think those are definitely worth the time. Um, and I think those are pretty functional. Uh, so you can do you know, exactly what you mentioned. You can do a rack pull. I'll often take the aerobic step and put the bar on that, and so that raises it up four inches. Uh, it's also a good tool if someone just can't can't learn how to keep their back flat uh, as you go lower, especially for some taller people. The trap bar is another pretty good option to use. Um, now, I don't like rack pulls as much when they get above the knee because typically people will change their mechanics, and then it just becomes kind of like a weird vertical squat motion, uh, which you, you would never really do in real life. But... Um, but yeah, no, I think rack pulls can be great. I also think that the deadlifts, in my opinion, probably the single best exercise for building up your traps and your your upper back. And so with rack pull, you can go even heavier. You can keep the tension on there. Um, so I, I think that 
that they're very good exercises, with the caveat being that if you just love rack pulls, you know, remember, you only get stronger in the range of motion you train in. So if you always just do a partial, just like if you always just partial squat, and then you go to a competition and you have to go all the way down or deadlift from the ground, you might be pretty disappointed in the fact that your, your difference in strength. But uh, but I know I think those exercises are very worthwhile to include as assistance work. Okay, awesome. Um, so let's kind of move into the squat because I'm kind of curious, what are you know some common mistakes you see like you know intermediate or novice uh, lifters do? Squats definitely the most complicated of the three lifts. Um, so you you know, and if you have any sort of compensation or injury, that's what will appear. Um, you know, typically appear the most in that in that lift. Uh, certainly for newbies, the biggest thing is just not going low enough. Um, and so then the question is, okay, well, what is low enough? Uh, there's more technical definitions, but the simplest example I've heard of the president of of the Raw Power Confederation kind of put it simply, which was at the bottom of a squat. If we put a marble at the top of your knee, does it roll down towards your foot, which means your hip is not very low, or does it roll down towards the hip? And so if the marble would roll down towards the hip, that's considered you know, competition depth, meaning this what we'd call a full squat. It's legal, and so it'll count. And if it doesn't roll towards the hip, it rolls towards your foot, it's not, you're not low enough. Um, now, there are, for regular people, you know, I would just argue go go as low as you can without changing, manipulating, bastardizing your form. So you don't have to think like, well, I'm just squatting and I just have to get my hips so low. And then it looks like some weird, you know, half good morning shimmy thing. Um, if you're just not built for that, you know, say la vie. But if you are interested in competing, you got to meet the standard. And the standard is your hip is below your knee. So most novices just don't know that. They show up to the very first competition and they do what's called bomb out, which means you don't get any of your lifts and Basically, everybody makes fun of you, so so you don't <laughs> want to do that. Um, so so again, learning how to squat, and then from there, just you know, not kind of violating form, meaning keeping your feet flat on the ground. Don't let yourself go up on your toes. Uh, don't let yourself shift um, your weight. So in other words, like if you look at yourself in the back, if you shift your hip to one side, or if your butt folds over, what we call like butt wink, uh, those things would all we definitely would want to avoid there. Yeah, that was going to be like my next question is like your opinion on the butt wing because like for me that happens when I squat, but I can let go like ass to the grass and come back up. And, you know, this recently actually I just tweaked my back because I went too low and it doesn't right. happen that often. And it's like it, it's kind of a dilemma for me because I'm like I have the mobility to squat all the way down, but I can't do it without a butt wink. And right. I'm kind of curious, like, what's your opinion about the whole topic? Because there's so many people are like, oh, if you can go all the way down, you should go all the way down. And then there's other people who are like, oh, if you have the butt wink, you shouldn't go past where the butt wink happened. So what's your opinion about it? Yeah, I would, I would probably lean more more in the latter club. Um, you know, it sounds like my guess is that you're, you know, you're pretty flexible. So if you do ass to the grass, you may get a little butt wink in there. Um, so my suggestion would be if you want to do that, switch more to, say, like a front squat or a goblet squat or something where the load's a little less. And my guess is just where the resistance is, it will take away the butt wink anyway. And then when you're doing your back squats, um, just go a little bit below parallel. Uh, you might even go just a little slower on the negative and then give it a little pause at the bottom. Um, but yeah, do it before you feel your, your hips kind of roll up under underneath you, assuming it's, you know, noticeable um and that way i think you can get the best of both worlds so you can still get all the benefits of the the back squat 
and using the higher load, but then you can also get the benefit of the greater range of motion. Um, but you don't need the massive, massive load down there at the bottom anyway. Um, so uh, I, that would be my suggestion to people in that, in that issue. Okay. Now the other question I had about the squat is when you're holding the bar behind you, what do you like to coach? Do you like to coach uh, people holding onto the bar and pulling down to activate your lats? Or would you coach them to push up on their way up of their squat to make it feel easier? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I do believe in individual variation. So, you know, that doesn't mean the same, you know, the same cue does not work for everybody. And we are sometimes built a little bit differently. Um, but for the normal person, I generally want to see their elbows in line with their torso. Uh, so, like, here's one example where I would differ a little bit with Ripito. He, he likes to get the elbows up for a little more of kind of a, a shelf. Um, but in my experience with people, especially if they have a tendency to fall forward when they squat, if you shove your elbows up, your upper back rounds, and now you're even more likely to fall forward. Uh, if you do kind of the, the pull the bar into you like a lat pull down, uh, that activates the lats, that activates the core, tends to keep you a little tighter, um, and then that tends to keep your torso more upright so for anybody that that is falling forward in particular i would encourage you know an elbows down cue or at least kind of a you know pull the elbows into you cue and not not intentionally trying to raise them up uh, i think just few people to raise up cue can work okay but for most people i'd rather kind of keep it in line with their body okay because yeah, i only ask because i remember when i got my uh usaw uh certification the guy teaching it he was from boise state and I asked him that question about, you know, pulling down the bar just like a lap pull down to kind of keep yourself a little bit more solid. And he's like, oh, that's so stupid. You should be pushing the bar up on the way up from your squat. And I was like, okay. And then when I met Chris Duffin, I asked him the same question. And he's like, no, that's stupid. You should pull the <laughs> bar down, right? And I'm like, this is the why this industry is so confusing. There's so many different opinions about it. And just, right. But I think it comes down to, yeah, like you said, the individual, like what works best for the person. And if that increases your number on your squad, you might as well just go do it. Right. I would be a little cautious. Like there's one thing to do elbows up. There's another thing to literally like pretend that you're military pressing your squat as though like that's going to make it lighter. So your shoulders already in kind of a rough area. Like when people squat a lot, it tends to be a little rough on their elbows and wrist anyway. And so if you're pushing up against it, I think that that could cause a reasonable amount of like overuse injury. So I would I would not cue anybody to like pretend that they're military pressing their squat while they're doing it. OK, uh, what's your opinion about the front squat? Do you like to use it in your programming as like, you know, a supplement lift to the back squat or do you just don't even use it at all? No, I like to use it. I think it uh, it helps fix a lot of uh, form flaws um, I know like, uh, I had knee surgery a couple years ago and it was, it was much easier, um, on my knee. And I think most people in general, the more vertical your shin is usually the, the, the more friendly things are on your knees. So front squats can work for that. You know, to me, the biggest issue is just where do you hold it? Uh, if you're flexible and you're an Olympic lifter, you know, then you just put it in the rack position and life is generally pretty good. <clears throat> but for a lot of bigger guys or older people that have been training for a while, you know, the front squat position positions awkward and even the crossed arm position has pros and cons um so you can you know there is a front squat harness which not all gyms have but if you have that that's an option uh if you need to do the, the crossed arms position kind of ronnie coleman style you know as long as you're not an olympic lifter that that you know, we're just trying to train the quads so that can work 
but yeah, no, I, I, I do like front squats. I think it's a great way to kind of continue to train the legs, go a little easier on the back, a little more quad focus. Um, it helps people stay upright. So uh, yeah, no, it's a very common assistance exercise. Probably my second favorite assistance exercise for legs, I'd say. Okay. Now going like for the deadlift and the squat from a programming standpoint, do you ever throw in like single leg exercises at all? Yes, I do. Um, you know, Mike Boyle and I have battled a few times uh, over the year over the over the value of single leg uh, things versus bilateral. But probably both of our positions have been taken a little out of context. Um, so certainly, I think you know, certainly as a powerlifter, bilateral stuff is more important. I do think you develop more strength bilaterally, but um, but the powerlifters sometimes neglect the unilateral training too much, and then that causes problems too. So I would, you know, I don't necessarily use the unilateral training just for sheer maximal strength because it's harder to achieve. But my rationale is if I keep the knees and hips healthy uh, through unilateral training, then I can go hard on the bilateral training and then we can keep getting stronger. So, um, so yeah, usually, you know, let's say I was going to do four leg exercises, you know, probably one, possibly two would be unilateral in nature, you know, depending on the athlete and what I felt like they needed. Um, you know, and I like the little test. If you're already good at something, you know, so if you can already drop down and give, do knock out 10 pistols, then you're probably pretty good at that. You really probably don't need to do a whole lot of extra work. Um, but, you know, if you can only get a halfway down and everything collapses uh, or you just suck at lunges, but you can squat 400 pounds, you know, there's a problem there. So then we need to we need to spend some time working on that. Well, what are your, like, say, go-to single leg exercises that you like to program in? Uh, my, my, probably my single favorite would be, uh, reverse landmine lunges. Um, so I find that very knee friendly, easy to set up, uh, pretty easy to do. Um, the Bulgarian split squat is good. Um, walking lunges solid. Um, I like single leg leg press that can work pretty well too. Um, and then, uh, if somebody wants some flexibility slash mobility, like a single leg deadlift is, uh, is, is fine. So I'd say those are probably kind of my, my main four. Okay, gotcha. Um, the other question I had for the back squat was, where do you like to put the bar position? Do you like to have it at a high position or a low position? For that, I let my athletes choose. Uh, I mean, I'll give them some feedback, but um, you know, in competition, most people go low bar simply because mechanic-wise, uh, you know, the bar is a little closer to the center of gravity. Uh, it shortens the moment arm of the resistance a little bit, so it's just a little bit easier. Um, Having said that, I do like, if I was just showing someone very first, I usually start them off with high bar. I feel like that's more of kind of a natural squat uh, for regular athletes. I think high bar is, is you know, can get, get all this, the same benefits um, that a low bar might. So, um, and I do have some athletes that just, you know, currently do high bar. That, that's either what they're comfortable with or that's just kind of where, where their form seems to go. Um, so, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll go over the pros and cons usually lift a little less weight. Certainly if you always fall forward and you do high bar, then you should think about doing low bar. But, um, but low bar can be rougher on the wrists, rougher on the elbows, uh, tends to pitch you forward a little bit. So it's a little harder on the back too. So, um, you know, just, there's pros and cons. If you just want pure weight, you'd probably be better off focusing on low bar. But I think for kind of athletic movement, uh, I think the high bar is a little more natural. Okay. Now, and for women, like I found this happened to me a couple of times, like with the squat and front squat, if you're dealing with like a female client that's fairly thin, 
they mm-hmm. don't really have a lot of meat on them up top. Right. And sometimes the bar kind of gets into, you know, it's hitting a bone or a collarbone too much. Like, what are your, you know, changes to bar position to kind of eliminate the awkward, like, pain in their joints? Suck it up, Buttercup. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it varies. If I just had a regular client, I'd be more. I might give them the pad or something like that. But that I don't do that very often. So, and certainly for a, a competitive lifter or anybody on my team, you know, that we, we would not break any of those things out. Um, I think a lot of it is still just position. So, you know, and just don't be afraid to start light. So, you know, it might just be literally just a bar, a 25 pound training bar, or 65 pounds or whatever. Um, you know, making sure that it's not on, you know, C7, that spinous process there in the back. It needs to be below that, you know, teaching them to kind of bunch their traps up uh, so they at least have a little cushion there. Um, and then, you know, it usually takes one to two months to get that internal callus to kind of develop. And then it just doesn't feel bad anymore because the negative of the pad is it, it then it rolls a lot. And so then the bars on their back and then it, it'll roll up on their neck more to roll off their shoulders. They never really feel it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I'm not a huge fan of the, uh, of the pad, but, you know, it doesn't mean it can never be used. Okay. Actually, the other one that I was just going to bring up is what's your opinion about the barbell hip thrust? I'm not, I, I don't have a problem with the barbell hip thrust. I know, you know, it, nobody heard of it, you know, 15 years ago, and then Brett, you know, kind of made it super popular. Um, and then just very recently, there's been some pushback against it. Um, you know, I don't. It, it's to me the biggest negative is it's just kind of a pain in the ass to to load up and and set up. Um, personally, because of that, I tend to do either more banded hip thrusts or just lighter weight, higher reps. You know, kind of like focusing on a squeeze. Um, but I I believe in you know the stronger our glutes can get, they're a pretty crucial muscle. Who doesn't want you know nice round ass? And uh, and the stronger butt generally helps out your back. Um, so obviously any exercise, if it hurts, don't do it. So if you do hip thrust and you have back pain, you know, don't do that. Uh, I don't necessarily see the need to go, you know, an 800 pound hip thrust, although, you know, any exercise pushed to some level is pretty cool. But, um, but yeah, I, I program a hip thrust with, with reasonable regularity. Uh, and so, uh, I don't have, I have no issue with them. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so the last one is the bench press. What are the most common mistakes you see people do with that one? Uh, let's see. Well, people love to butcher the bench press, right? Because everybody's trying to go heavy on it. It's a real popular exercise. So my mistakes there would be, from a competition point of view, you know, just not understanding that you have to pause it. So the biggest difference there is you have to bring it down to your chest. It has to sit on your chest. You have to wait for a judge to say, press, and then you have to push it up. So if you're used to just, you know, touching your chest and immediately reversing it or bouncing it off your chest or worse, not ever even touching your chest. Uh, if you actually try to do a competition style, you're going to be pretty sadly disappointed. Um, but as long as you're smart about it and you train about it, those, those things, you, you can get used to that style very, you know, very, um, very well. Um, and then the other big thing is not understanding that you need to kind of tuck your elbows. So if someone took a picture of you from a bird's eye view, you would not want your humerus, your upper arm, sticking out at a 90 degree angle. If you did that really, that means the bar is gonna come down to the base of your neck. Uh, and that's not, obviously not where you touch the bench. So your humerus should be down closer to like a 45 or 60 degree angle. So that's called just tuck your elbows. The bar should hit kind of nipple level, mid chest. Um, and then you kind of push it backwards and upwards. And so just, that's really important for shoulder health and for maximal strength. 
So, uh, so just kind of knowing what's expected if you do a real competition. And then, you know, just all the classics. Keep your feet flat. Don't shove your ass up in the air and make a decline. Uh, don't only bench. You know, you get the people that bench four times a week all the time and never touch their back or rear delts. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then just getting that form down. So what's the uh, purpose behind, like, arching your back during the bench? Because you see that in powerlifting a lot, a lot. And other than, like, making the distance shorter and me, like, what I've noticed is, like, I just have a better grip with my feet to drive through the heels to even, like, activate my glutes. But what's mm-hmm. the real purpose behind arching the back for the bench press? Well, I mean, you, you pretty much nailed the purpose. Uh, okay. You know, there's it's actually kind of um, – this is actually an area of big debate, and usually when I post articles on this, these usually get my most kind of heated responses. And so, so first, just for clarification, there's really like two kinds of arch. There's what I would call like a normal or an upper body arch, which is where you just – or an upper back arch where you kind of – you know, you lift your chest, you pull your shoulder blades back, you know, kind of like, like I'm a badass position. Um and pretty much everybody, I think, agrees that you want your your upper back to be in that position when you bench press. Um, the debate then becomes, well, what do you do with your like torso and your hips? You know, you might have seen some videos. There are some people that are like crazy flexible, and you know, their back, you know, looks like you could you could get another person, you know, underneath <laughs> their back. Um, and so, I personally am pretty opposed to that. And it's kind of a bastardization of the rule, which the rule just says your butt should be on the bench, but it doesn't clarify whether that means a little tippy edge of your butt that's right next to your hamstring or whether it means, like, most of your butt, which I personally think is what the founders meant when they when they put the rule in. Um, so there are some people that can essentially, like, tilt their pelvis down and then make a St. Louis arch with their spine, and, you know, then they're benching their range of motions like four inches. Um so my suggestion to the power federations is clarify your rules, get rid of that bench. I don't really think that does anybody any good, but there are certainly some powerlifting purists out there or, or, you know, people that believe the arch is kind of good or it's just, it's within the rules. So who am I to say to change it? So I've certainly gotten a few, uh, a few angry tweets and, and posts, uh, about not, you know, getting my head out of my ass and things like that for those comments. Um, but, uh, you know, my basic thought is, the joy of powerlifting is not just that I can lay down and move a 28 millimeter bar, you know, 12 inches in space. But the cool thing is, if I can bench 400 pounds, I'm good at incline, I'm good at decline, I'm good at dumbbell press, I'm good at dumbbell fly, I'm good at push-ups. I'll probably be pretty good if I line up against a lineman and have to push them. And so it helps a lot of other things. And that's what makes powerlifting powerful. And so all these other sports then come to you and say, hey, you're good at this. And, you know, I believe this would help my sport help, you know, then help me out. If we turn it into powerlifting is just the bar to point A to point B, you do every little thing you can to, you know, reduce the range of motion, manipulate everything. And, you know, so you have, so you have then these bench masters that are literally pressing the bar four inches that, that I guess it's within the rules, but that, that doesn't help anybody. Right. And that's not going to help a football player. I don't want to walk into a high school gym and see, you know, 15 teenage kids benching that way. Um, so my my attitude is we should be kind of the beacons of good form, and we should kind of show people how to, how it's done. Uh, the what I feel is the right way, and so that's 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 where I kind of draw the line on that one. Okay, um, going back to the deadlift, I'm kind of curious. Like, say someone finally hit 300 pounds on their deadlift, and now obviously they're like thinking, now I want to hit 400. 
Like, what separates a really good lifter that's able to do 400 plus than someone who just passed like the 300 mark? Like, what kind of programming or advice would you have for that kind of person? Um, so, we, I mean, we got a couple things there. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to be an asshole. Like your definition of really good deadlifter in mind might be slightly different, but um, in terms of where, uh, you know, in terms of what somebody needs to do, the first thing I would do is just say, hey, your squat is probably your best assistance exercise for the deadlift. So don't fall in love with the deadlift because, you know, maybe you're only squatting two plates or 185, and then it's like, oh, but I can deadlift 300. You know, I feel better doing this, and then you just keep doing deads. Uh, if you took your squat from 200 to 250, yeah, I'm pretty much willing to guarantee, especially at that level, your deadlift's going to go from 300 to 350 as a result of that. Um, so keep squatting. Uh, you don't have to deadlift all the time. Deadlift the muscles and deadlift, particularly your erectors, your lower back. Now they recover the slowest, so they need the longest recovery time. So usually people just need to deadlift once, maybe twice a week, uh, whereas squats can definitely be done twice a week for you know the vast majority of people. Um, and so. Uh, you know, so I, I would just continue to follow kind of, you know, regular, slow and steady progressive overload. Trying to train with people that are stronger than you, I think, is awesome. So when you see someone else, you know, when you thought 300 was heavy, but then you see someone else that's doing 350, you're like, shit, I, you know, I, I can do that. Or, you know, that we're about the same or you know, I'll get up to that. And it's just motivating to see somebody, uh, you know, to see somebody do that. Um, so. You know, so in terms of programming, I'd program, you know, the deadlift, like I said, probably once a week. Uh, you know, pretty intensely. You don't have to use high volume on the deadlifts, just a couple of key sets, but I would definitely blast general back pretty hard and then legs pretty hard as well. Those are really going to be your drivers uh, to get that deadlift still moving. Okay. Um, the next thing I would kind of want to touch on is like, you know, if you pull something, it's usually like, say, your low back or you pull a groin or something, what's kind of your protocol to get your athlete or even yourself? kind of back into it at a hundred percent as quick as possible. So, I mean, first, you know, I'm a big believer, you know, when in doubt, kind of refer it out. So if it's really serious, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, go to a doctor, let's get a diagnosis. Let's see what's actually going on. Assuming, you know, it's not something crucial that requires surgery. Oh, hold on. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. It's something that's, uh, you know, not crucial, um, that requires surgery or something like that. Then, Give it a little bit of time, you know, so usually a couple of weeks of, of doing little or, or nothing. You know, the first stage of injury is inflammation, and the, the tissue is usually more sensitive, so our main goal is just don't make it worse, right? So if your back's kind of tweaked, don't go in and be like, screw it, I'm supposed to be doing 400 anyway, and then, you know, then you make it worse. Um, but that shouldn't last too long. After a couple of weeks, then I would start with kind of lighter weight. I'm a believer in training reasonably pain-free, so if it hurts... Because what happens is when you're in a lot of pain, your Golgi tendon organs and your joint receptors just shut off the muscle. So even if you're like, I'm super tough, like I don't care that I'm in pain, you, you get a shitty workout anyway because most of the muscle fibers are deactivated. So you want to wait until the joint is receptive to that force going across it. Um, so I would train lighter. I would choose maybe a slightly different exercise, reduce the range of motion. So that's like where a rack pull might might be really handy for a little while. And the person might find they can go heavier there, you know, with, with zero pain. Uh, working on weak points. Uh, I'm a big believer in getting some blood in there, so doing higher reps. I posted an article on T Nation, like a four-week recovery from injury. 
And so instead of focusing on reps, you focus on time. So like the first week you lift 45 seconds on, 15 seconds off, you do that for a couple minutes. So that's pretty light, but you get a big pump. And then the next week's like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and then it kind of keeps progressing from there. And then usually after, you know, four to eight weeks, you should pretty much be back to normal. If you're not, you know, then maybe the diagnosis was wrong. Maybe it is more serious and maybe, you know, maybe it needs to get checked out. Yeah, because I find, especially when you're like deadlifting and squatting and even benching, your initial thought is like, oh, I could play, put another like five pounds on there. And then, you know, you pull something and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, like it, it's tough, especially for guys. Like, even the guys that I train, they always want to go heavier every single week. And I'm like, you know, slow and steady wins the race on this one. Definitely. Um, so, kind of my next question is like, what's a good rate of increasing weight? Like, what's realistic? Like, you know, someone's not going to raise 100 pounds on their deadlift in one month. So, what's kind of a good rate if everything's going right per month or per quarter or per year to see numbers go up? That's a good question. Um, it's definitely going to be correlated to how advanced the person is. So to me, I really feel like that's one of the big challenges of personal training and program design. You're trying to create a program that matches the rate of adaptation of your client. So beginners, let's start with them. They're going to adapt really fast. So that means that they should make progress you know, probably weekly. Um, and so for a beginner doing a deadlift, and the nice thing is deadlifts usually – you know, you can go up pretty high on them compared to any other lift. So feel free to start real light. Maybe it's just the bar or 65 or 95 pounds or whatever. And then for them, they may be able to go up five or 10 pounds a week. Um, intermediates usually adapt closer to, you know, once every two weeks, maybe once every three weeks. So what you could do there, let's just say, for example, is you could have like a lighter day where you do deadlifts for, say, sets of 10. And then you do a, a heavier day where you do deadlifts, for example, for sets of five. And that just might be like an A and B program. So on one week, you do the set of 10. The next week, you do the set of five. Then when you go back to the set of 10, now you add, say, five pounds. So essentially, you're going up five pounds every other week. And then advanced people will progress even slower, but they still should be progressing some. So their body will change every three to four weeks. So that might be like that's where like 531 comes in. It's, you know, it's basically causing adaptation every three weeks. So you set up a program where you kind of repeat through and then at the end of those three weeks, then you add five, you know, most likely five pounds um, and kind of, you know, kind of go back. There's certainly other ways to peak, uh, but the short answer to the question is just trying to match that rate of adaptation. So for beginners, I think five, maybe 10 pounds a week for one to two months is certainly doable. For intermediates, you know, five pounds a week or five pounds every other week. So we're looking at 10 to 20 pounds a month uh, is pretty doable. And then for advanced people, uh, you know, it may be a total of 20 pounds a year is what they're excited about to put on. Okay. Now, last question, because we're, like, coming up to an hour. Um, what's the worst advice you've seen out in the powerlifting world? Oh, worst advice. Um, well, I don't know about powerlifting world. I just saw a video of some dude who had uh, he stacked two vertical dumbbells and then he had a girl squatting on two dumbbells stacked vertically, and her form was a nightmare, and, like, her knees buckled, and then the dumbbells fell, and then the weight crashed down on her. So that was just moronic. <laughs> uh, hopefully nobody would ever do that. Um, for powerlifting in specific, uh, I guess uh, 
I mean, I'm a personal trainer, so health and fitness, you know, is important to me. Um, so you can get, you know, kind of strong and fat at the same time. And so, you know, if all you want to do is just lift more weight, you know, if you gain weight, you'll you'll probably lift more weight. But do we want, you know, to promote, you know, some dude who's already 220, you know, to go up to 350 so he can bench another 30 pounds, um, you know, but can't climb a flight of steps? Uh, that's obviously uh, that's obviously a, you know a, a negative. Um, so so for that, I, it's a good question. I'm. I, uh, I'm sure I'll think of an, of an even cooler answer, you know, an hour after, after <laughs> this is over. But, um, but yeah, I would say don't just get fat at the, you know, in the hope of getting strong. And to be honest with you, when you're super fat, you know, the power of being strong is pretty diminished. You know, people don't walk around thinking about sumo wrestlers as like, you know, the epitome of uh, strength and power. Um, they're more the, the butt of most jokes. So, uh, so certainly you know, it doesn't mean you got to be like a bodybuilder, right? You don't have to be super, super lean or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but have an element of fitness to go with your strength. And I think regular people and your own personal life will be, uh, will be definitely enhanced as you go through. Awesome. So that's a good place to end. And very last question, where can people find you online? Do you have any projects coming out, speaking engagements, books, or anything like that? You can just go plug away. All right. Plugs are always good. So, uh, you can, if you like powerlifting, definitely check out my website, allaboutpowerlifting.com. Um, I have three DVDs there. Each one's about an hour and a half in length on the squat, the bench, the deadlift. That's where you can get a copy of my powerlifting book. Uh, check out their reviews on Amazon if you're curious about it. I think you'll find they're pretty favorable. It's an ebook or a hard copy book, so whatever whatever you want to do there. Um, if you love personal training. You know, certainly think about the school. Uh, you can also buy the textbook that we have for personal trainers on Amazon as well. Um, so check that out. I do have something massive coming in 2018, but I can't talk about it yet. So, but I'm very excited about that. So maybe we can do another podcast in a little while to uh, to go over that. Um, other than that, everything's going good. Feel free to have people look me up on Facebook, just Tim Enriquez on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, people can email me. My email is tim at nptifitness.com. And uh, happy to try to, you know, connect with you and answer any questions that I can. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate you having us out. And I appreciate you uh, helping to spread some awesome fitness information for the masses so everybody can get, you know, jacked and strong. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 72 with Tim. Hopefully you learned a thing or two about powerlifting and how to improve your squat, how to improve on your deadlift and also your bench press. Now, if you have any more questions or wanted to clarify something that we talked about, please comment on this episode. You know, email me at rafael at empowerhp.ca. It's R-A-F-A-L. And share this podcast as always to your friends and family. Spread the word. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out and I'll get right back to you. And... See you guys next week for another amazing episode.